Hello, my name is Leszek Jaszczewski. Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast, a European Liberal Forum project. I hope you'll enjoy our program. Hello, my name is Leszek Jaszczewski. Welcome to Liberal Europe podcast. My guest today is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment uh, in the Carnegie Europe in Brussels, where his research focuses on post-Lisbon Treaty developments of European Union foreign policy, um, with a focus on the relations between the EU and member states. Uh, he's also the, the colleague from the IWM, when we were both on different times, the non-resident fellows in the Europe Futures program. Stefan Lenner, one of the leading experts in foreign policy in Europe. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Leszek. Stefan, I wanted to ask you, um, when you wrote your analysis um, for Carnegie in April, making EU foreign policy fit for a geopolitical world, strongly recommended. Uh, we'll try to include the link for, for our listeners um, in the description of the podcast. You wrote that the Union responded to Russian aggression with a coherence and determination rarely seen before. I want to ask you, uh, do you hold this view after, well, for basically four months uh, already now passing? And how do you, how do you assess the, the EU response to the war in, in general? Well, definitely, I, I think the EU responded forcefully uh, with determination and the cohesion that you have rarely seen before. And that is even more remarkable if you remember that the EU has always been divided when it comes to Russia. There were countries like uh, Poland and the Baltic states and a number of others who had a very, very skeptical view of, of Moscow throughout. And there were quite a number of other countries like uh, Italy, uh, Austria, Greece, uh, and many others who were actually quite uh, friendly with Russia and they took great uh, pride in, in a positive relationship and uh, they were very much focused on the economic potential of this relationship. So these divisions were quite uh, deep. Uh, and I think there are basically two reasons why it was possibly to, possible to overcome them um, in reaction to the uh, Russian aggression against Ukraine. The first reason is that the aggression was so crass and so unjustified and, and so horrible that I think even the greatest Putin versteher, the greatest Putin fans among the EU governments uh, fell into line because this was simply not justifiable by any means. And the second reason was that uh, the US administration handled this issue extremely well. Uh, I think they uh, were almost the only country that assessed the threat correctly uh, and they worked extremely well with the Europeans in putting together all these uh, sanctions packages and, and uh, ensured I think helped to ensure a coherent response by the European Union. I wanted, uh, well, uh, um, you, you mentioned, I think, the important uh, issue of, of uh, US leadership on this. Do you think that um, despite the expectations, this actually puts a big question mark on the strategic autonomy or strategic sovereignty that was a very popular uh, a catchphrase before the invasion? Because it seems that actually you still need US even to mobilize uh, its own resources to, to be engaged in the um, in the, this closest neighborhood possible and that um, the lack of the clear leadership on the side of the biggest country Germany uh, in this case means that we 
and Britain gone from the from the EU. I think the most um, conscious geopolitical player uh, among the um, European states. It seems that uh, it's not enough for for you on its own to take action in its in its US. What was your assessment? Well, I think uh, for the time being, I think the Ukraine war put a certain damper on the development of European defense policies. No question about it. I think uh, NATO was strongly reinforced by this development. I think uh, quite a number of countries realized there is no alternative to US engagement uh, on the European continent. Uh, and and the need for an autonomous EU defense policy is less evident than it had been before. And the fact that Sweden and Finland applied to join uh, NATO, uh, I think, is also a vote of non-confidence in European defense, because clearly they believe that only with the help of the United States they can ensure the security of their citizens. And that clearly means that uh, focus will not be so strong on an autonomous European defense. But there's one big question mark, and the big question mark uh, is the US. You know that there is uh, it's enormous pol polarized society. There is great uncertainty regarding the outcome of the next uh, congressional uh, elections and then the presidential elections, and it is not at all excluded that um, someone like Trump, even Trump himself, might come back uh, a personality with a lot of uh, lack of interest in partners, international partners, with very little commitment to Europe. And if that happens, and it can very easily happen, then this whole picture will reverse itself. And suddenly there will be a need to put much, much greater emphasis on European defense again. What seems to be one of the problems, and, and you mentioned this also in your analysis, is that you, uh, well, usually it stands up to the to the events uh, of the hour, the, the, the politics of events, as, as also Luke van Middelark was, uh, I guess, in the previous uh, edition of the of the podcast, uh, wrote in his, in his book, Passes to Europe. So you is forced sometimes to improvise uh, outside the treaties, because, of course, the, the, the foreign and defense Policies are well only of limited, are only of limited. Uh, well, let's say legitimacy um, on the on the EU side. But sometimes you can take action in a strategic way, but only when it's forced to. And I'm wondering, do you see that it is possible that this strategic culture will develop in uh, in the EU on its own? Is it is it the, the issue of the not perhaps as the EU as such of the institutions, but perhaps of the national country, of the of the nation states, that they are not eager to delegate, but also not eager to engage enough resources and well imagination and 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 will most of all into the uh, into the thinking and and planning and strategizing as as a whole. I think especially of France, because of course Germany has its own you know historical issues, but well uh, I. Poland now is a Eurosceptic country, but also, I know, Spain, Italy. It seems that, I don't know, is, is it the problem on the side of Europeans that we just get used to the umbrella, uh, American umbrella so much that we, 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 we can't think in this way on our own together? Uh, or is it like the issue, or is it like a different issue? Perhaps if we are left on our own, we'll have to develop this, uh, these qualities. And it, it, it could be uh, easily and, and quickly made up by uh, by the European experts and European politicians. 
So do you think we can develop a strategic culture? Do we have a strategic culture in the in the EU? Well, I would say that the three basic reasons for the relative weakness of European foreign and security policy. The first reason is the strong preference for some of the big countries for their own national foreign policy. I think it's blatantly true regarding France, uh, but also to some extent regarding Germany and Italy and Spain to maybe a lesser extent. They simply want to run their own national policy and they look at the EU as uh, some kind of a mechanism to um, in, uh, to make sure that national foreign policy is more successful and more supported by others. But they do not want to identify fully with EU foreign policy, and they certainly do not want powerful Brussels institutions uh, in this field. I think uh, if you look at the French president, he's a bit like the king. He can send troops mm. everywhere within 24 hours, doesn't have to ask anyone. and to believe that this person would then, uh, in a way, um, let Borrell or Van der Leyen run foreign policy for him is unthinkable. It's, it's a bit like thinking that you can move the Eiffel Tower from Paris to Brussels. It's just not <laughs> And uh, the second uh, constraint is uh, the, the number of the smaller member states have simply not a strong interest and no strategic culture uh, and, and no real uh, tradition of foreign policy players. I, I think they like to talk in the council to comment on developments, but they lack the kind of readiness to face the costs and the risks of operational action. And I, I think also probably the support of their population. That's the second cons uh, constraint. And the third one is that everybody has, who in this field has been socialized for decades, basically, uh, in uh, looking at Washington. What is Washington going to do about this crisis, about that crisis? And it's very, very hard to free yourself up from this uh, uh, thinking, this uh, instinctive uh, following of, 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 of U.S. Uh, policy. And it was fascinating for me to see after the period of Trump with what enormous relief and happiness the EU sort of relapsed into this kind of benign American hegemony. And I, I think uh, I would think that if that is suddenly not happening anymore because the U.S completely is absorbed by internal crisis or has a leader that hates Europe, like like Trump, uh, then I think there will be a need to be much more serious about uh, foreign and security policy. And possibly these other two constraints could be overcome. I don't rule it out. But I think in the, in the short and medium term, I see a lot more promise in the geoeconomics, basically, in, in, in dealing with uh, supply chains in dealing with um, uh, climate change uh, issues, with uh, industrial policy. There is a huge amount of things to do that are certainly not less crucial than foreign policy. And on these issues, the EU is much better equipped because it has uh, the instruments and it has more effective decision-making procedures. So I, I see quite a lot of promise in this area, but uh, I must say less promise immediately when it comes to foreign and security policy. There is, uh, I think, the, currently since the Russian invasion, there is like the most serious 
set of proposals or uh, discussions about uh, getting rid of the of the qualify of the uh, unanimous voting in the in the council on foreign security issues. Well, with perhaps a couple of exceptions, you write about it. Of course, it will be not the the remedy for all the problems, but that will be a step in the right direction, even if it's limited to uh, even the, the, the least controversial subjects. And so you also mentioned that uh, the, the smaller states, I remember the, the conversations with the, uh, well, it was public, so I can, I can mention this with the Prime Minister of Croatia, uh, who, who, who said that, well, it was in the context of Hungary and, and Eurosceptic countries in the EU, but also he, Mr. Petkovic is not a Eurosceptic himself, but he, he said that, well, basically considering how many qualified majorities are, uh, votings are with regard to all other issues, um, sometimes also pretty controversial, this foreign uh, policy is the, like almost the only area in which the smaller countries um, can can feel that they can have some influence, perhaps also with regard to other issues, not necessarily the foreign policy. But of course, the Hungary here is uh, is perhaps an exception. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm wondering if it would be possible to, for example, uh, th there is this clause which allows countries to uh, have this kind of constructive abstention, right? And if like one third of the uh, if one third of the countries or representing one third of the of 30 percent of EU population are abstaining in this way, it, it, the, the, the proposal doesn't go through. It seems that basically that that could be perhaps uh, the kind of uh, security guarantee for the smaller countries. Perhaps it may be, it may be this, this video should be even possible if it's like, I don't know, 15 or 20 percent of the population. So they don't feel that uh, five or six biggest EU countries can't always outvote them uh, in this in this way. How do you see, because on the same, at the same time, it seems that EU responded despite this uh, treaty changes or procedural changes in the in the Council. So do you think that the, the Russian invasion or, I don't know, perhaps the COVID crisis or other recent crises that they show the need to, to, to change the, the unanimous voting or it is, it's, it seems as a symbol of the of making the EU a ge geopolitical player, but it wouldn't by its own make EU acting more in this way. So, are we short-sighted to, to to concentrate focus on this on this treaty change, or do you think that if we change it, we'll see a, a big progress on uh, well material progress on the on the more coherent and faster decisions in the in the council? Well, I think uh, a couple of points on this. The first one is that there are, uh, of course, over the last 20, 30 years, there have been a large number of transitions from unanimity to qualified majority voting, also on quite sensitive issues such as policing, uh, home affairs, uh, justice, things that are equally close to the core of national sovereignty. And it was possible to do these transitions, and uh, there is no fundamental reason why why it should not be possible to do this on on, on foreign policy. Um, I think um, clearly the problem here is uh, smaller countries, and particularly countries that have big smaller countries with big problems. Uh, if you look like Cyprus, the Baltic states to some extent, but also Malta, etc. They are very sensitive and they feel, Cyprus for instance, they need this veto in order to protect uh, its vital national interests 
uh, when it comes to Turkey, for instance. So this will be very, very difficult to uh, get rid of. But uh, I think the, uh, the constructive abstention is definitely uh, a very valuable uh, mechanism that has been used very rarely in the past, but has considerable potential. There is also a provision in the treaty that if you have qualified majority vote, but if national interests, uh, important national interests are at stake, it is possible for a country to move the decision up to the European Council. And, and that is another safeguard. I think that would be quite useful. I'm, I'm hopeful. I, I think it's possible if there's strong leadership on this issue that some progress could be achieved. I think in the past, um, I think uh, even the big countries were not sufficiently committed. France basically uh, never considered this a priority. The Germans talked a lot about it, but they didn't push very hard. But I, I could imagine that there is now a context with this much darker, more difficult world. To, to, for a serious effort to overcome this. You don't need treaty change to, to do this. You can do it through what's called the Passerelle Clause, the decision of the European Council by unanimity. But I, I think it maybe not on everything, certainly not on defense, but on, on, on some substantive issues, a breakthrough is, uh, doesn't seem to be impossible to me. Uh, as you said rightly, this will not be... A silver bullet it will not suddenly mm -hmm. make European foreign policy incredibly successful, but it means that uh, the proliferation of blockages that we've experienced in the past, uh, in the past uh, five to ten years on declarations on human rights when it comes to China, issues relating to Israel and on other points, I think that might be overcome. Otherwise, I think you see a trend already in EU foreign policy that, for instance, in multilateral institutions, that if there is a country blocking and the others go ahead and uh, adopt uh, a statement or a declaration uh, among 26 or 25 countries. And I, I think inevitably, if, if there are more blockages, there will be a stronger tendency uh, for groups of, of the willing uh, to go forward uh, possibly outside the EU context. And that, of course, is not uh, positive for the development of EU foreign policy. Uh, speaking of, of, of the foreign policy, it's, it seems that uh, Foreign Affairs Council and to some extent also uh, European External Action Service, I don't want to say that they are not up to the task, but they don't seem to play perhaps the role that uh, either they used to play, as in the case of the Foreign Affairs Council, or it was expected to play uh, in this well, kind of very unique placement of between the council and and the commission by the uh, external action service. And I'm wondering if you if you if you how too much how much do you think it depends on the personality of person who is that the high commissioner on foreign affairs and security Borrell announced that uh, you the birth of geopolitical Europe. To be honest, what I remember mostly is that uh, he also mentioned that uh, the certain aircraft will be delivered to Ukraine from uh, from Poland, Slovakia and Bulgaria, which which at, at the time was denied by the government and it caused a lot of trouble. Uh, and so I don't I don't know, to be honest, I don't see that even if he, this job to Europe is is really is really boring. It doesn't seem that it's it, it at least exists or lives in the either commission or external action service. 
I wondering, do you think that there are uh, you write about it, but uh, I wonder what's what's your reflection after a couple of months of of war? That, that is, sh should we change the the way that that those institutions are uh, are run, are are designed? Because now the prime minister takes most of the important decisions, and it seems that this is where the real powers uh, power is with regard to to foreign policy. And it will be, as you mentioned before in our conversation, impossible to expect certain countries to give up these strategic decisions to to any kind of European bureaucrats, even those who are well selected by by all of them. So, what, what's your reflections on perhaps the institutional changes that we need to uh, need to follow regarding uh, external action service and uh, and the Foreign Affairs Council? Uh, well, there are various problems. The first one relates to the Council of Foreign Ministers. When I was working with Javier Solana, you had all the foreign ministers there at each council meeting and they debated usually about Middle East and Balkans issues for many hours. And now, I think many are absent. Uh, others just come for the lunch because it's simply <laughs> not very important what happens there, right? Uh, and that's devastating, of course. And, and uh, there are the main reason for this, there are other reasons too, but the main reason for this is that foreign ministers are simply not as important as they used to be. If you read about um, the First World War, uh, foreign ministers were big beasts. They took huge and enormous decisions. And now they are basically uh, uh, basically helpers of the prime ministers. I and think Sherpas. Sherpas with better titles. Right. <laughs> basically, I think the... Today, international relations is not something for one ministry, it's something for the entire government. And the only uh, politician who can really coordinate and take decisions, move things forward, is the prime minister. And uh, the foreign minister might be influential if he is close to the prime minister, but in some coalition governments, even that is not the case. So I think in the EU, uh, the whole... Emphasis also on important foreign policy issues shifted to the European Council, where the prime ministers are present. And that's not a tragedy. The problem is that uh, many prime ministers are not very good at foreign policy. They're basically, uh, you know, they've been socialized in a domestic context. Uh, some of them don't understand foreign policy very well. Uh, and there is not a very good support structure for um, the European Council in the institutions. Basically, it all depends basically on the president of the European Council. And, uh, he uh, doesn't have a strong, uh, you know, uh, council of expertise, etc. So everything is rather improvised. It's all very much focused on crisis management and sometimes it's not very handled, well handled at all. So that's why I believe it would be useful to create something like a National Security Council, like they have it in the US, uh, a body of, of experts and political advisors that analyzes intelligence and other issues and makes recommendations to the European Council. I think that would be quite useful and quite positive. The other problem is the role of the high representative and the role of the external action service. I, I think, you know, the provisions of the Lisbon Treaty are actually quite strong. They uh, created a very important function in the high representative. He chairs the council, uh, he uh, presides over the external action service, the foreign ministry of the EU, and he is also a vice president of the commission. So he coordinates 
between the external relations led by the Commission and foreign and security policy. But the irony is that uh, having created such an important uh, position, the member states didn't want an important person <laughs> to, to be in the, that role, <laughs> uh, because that would be too much a threat to their national foreign policy. And therefore, if they, if you look at the choices that they've made so far, uh, Madame Ashton, uh, Mogherini, uh, Borrell, uh, all these are very honorable personalities, but they are not big players, right? Uh, and uh, they're not someone who can actually tell Macron, no, I want to do it this way, or can tell <laughs> Scholz uh, uh, this proposal is unacceptable. They are basically civil servants. And I've been told by someone who was there, I'm not quite sure, I can't verify it, but when um, the European Council decided uh, on the replacement of, of Ashton, uh, President Hollande, who was French president at the time, said, well, let's not waste time on this. This is a spokesperson, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think it explains very well the kind of <laughs> lack of respect uh, some of the big um, politicians have for, the, for this role. And I think Borrell uh, handles this job in a very different way from his predecessors. He's much more outspoken. Uh, but of course, the question arises to whom, does, for whom does he actually speak? Because frequently his statements go well beyond the uh, consensus in the council. And in a way, he has become the sort of not the high representative, but the high think tanker of the European Union. He writes a blog and he uh, gives interesting interview, interviews. But ultimately, the question is, um, whom does he actually represent at times? Hmm? So I I think the experience of the last uh, three, four years has shown that the U European Commission has become a much more important player in foreign policy, uh, different from uh, Juncker, von der Leyen is hugely interested in this issue. She has a strong background as former German defense uh, minister. And for instance, when it comes to the sanctions against Russia, uh, uh, all this was, most of the work was carried out between uh, Washington, uh, the security advisor of President Biden, and the cabinet of, of von der Leyen. I, I think uh, Borrell and the uh, External Action Service was barely sidelined. So I do believe that uh, the commission, uh, the president is, uh, is now, I think, uh, probably the most important foreign policy actor in the institutions stronger than the president of the European Council and certainly stronger than uh, than the high representative. Well, yeah, it seems that in in this aspect of, of the policy, the, the resources and access to resources is, is crucial. So commission at least can, in the case of sanctions, place an important role. Geoeconomics, as you mentioned, and the head of the commission is a partner for the heads of governments. And I think they see the president of the council and the head of the external action service as, as you said, as a spokesperson. So it's not, it's, it's a person that perhaps can try to coordinate, but it very much depends on the, on the kind of personal or um, position and, and relations with the, with the key players. And if they are absent or they want to play their own game, well, I, I think we might end up with interesting interviews instead of, of creating policy. I wanted to ask you, uh, we're slowly getting to, to the end of, of our conversation, but I wanted to ask you, um, when you, um, you, you worked uh, for, for, for a time 
you served uh, the General Secretariat of the Council of the European Union uh, as a director for the Balkans, Eastern Europe and Central Asia. And, um, and recently we've seen the promise of enlargement uh, that was presented for the, just for Ukraine and Moldova. All the uh, Balkan countries were sidelines, uh, as was uh, Georgia. Do you think that this symbolic decision, uh, I think Moldova was was simply there because of the of the President Macron uh, insistence, but but maybe also because it's it's, it's close to Russia. But uh, do you think that um, it is like enlargement is back on the on the table, or it is simply the well kind of the moment, kind of symbolic moment when then he had to take some action and couldn't say no. But it didn't say yes, and but at the same time, many Western Balkans countries were antagonized. Uh, I think in the process, what do you see? How do you see the the future of the of the enlargement in, in a couple of years? Well, uh, I've been told that in the council there has been a lot of resistance uh, to the candidate status for Ukraine and Moldova because uh, many governments felt it was not realistic. I think the argument that finally won over these reservations was the fact that if you deny Ukraine uh, candidate status, it would be amount to a victory for Vladimir Putin. And nobody wanted to do this, right? So I, I think the decision was the correct one because it expresses a commitment to the future of Ukraine as an independent and sovereign state with a European uh, vision and destination. Uh, I think it's a very, very long-term uh, prospect. I think what needs to be done first if, <laughs> to, uh, to end the war in, in some way, to win the war if possible, and then to uh, st uh, start a very, very important reconstruction process uh, in Ukraine. And uh, membership is certainly not possible uh, for, for several, for many years, I would say. Uh, I think um, enlargement remains a very important policy tool for the European Union. And if you look at the Balkans, there has been insufficient progress, partly because of the countries not doing enough in terms of reforms, but also because somehow the EU got distracted by the whole series of important crises that uh, the EU had to face over the last years. There was simply not no bandwidth, no real uh, interest. It was simply not a priority. And if it's not a priority, nothing much moves forward. Uh, but still, I think it's very clear that Balkans are an enclave in the European Union. Uh, on all sides, <laughs> there are EU countries. I think more than 70% of the trade is with the EU. Um, most of the investment comes from the EU. There is no strategic alternative. I think eventually these countries will join, uh, but it will take a long time and it will take more engagement, probably also more funding. Uh, and, and I just hope, I'm not sure, but I hope that the EU will find the kind of headspace to again uh, commit to the Balkans and do uh, what is necessary. In the meantime, uh, enlargement from the Balkan happens, but on an individual basis, because uh, millions of people, I think at the moment there are only 18 million people left in the Balkans, millions are already in the EU, because it's much oh. easier to, to uh, change 
countries than to change your country. So a lot mm -hmm. of the best people in the Balkans have decided that for themselves and their families, it makes much more sense to move to the EU. And that, of course, uh, is a huge problem because uh, with uh, demographic decline, uh, it's very difficult to, to start a dynamic economic development again. So I, I think if the EU is unwilling to recommit to um, having the Balkans countries move forward towards the EU, we'll see many, many more people arriving, and we also will see more and more problems coming from the region. We started with the EU response to the to the war and wanted to to end um, uh, with the with a similar issue. Uh, the ECFR published uh, some time ago the. They, they did the polling among the, I think, 10 biggest European countries and, uh, well, they put them into kind of two camps, the peace camp and the justice camp. To be honest, I, I, I wasn't sure if justice was the best description of the, of the approach, especially that's uh, like almost like one third of the people didn't belong to neither of, of those camps. How do you see the, how do you see the way that this war can develop? And, what role will you play in this, if at all? And are you uh, afraid that the, the energy crisis might influence the, the equilibrium and this determination to support Ukraine will diminish uh, in winter? And you, instead of supporting Ukraine, will start pushing for ending the war on whichever terms uh, are possible and acceptable, but mostly to Russia, not to, not to Ukraine. And do you think that there will be a comeback of, of this, uh, well, pro-Russian policy out of necessity because simply he is not ready to, to be energetically independent. So do you think that, how, how do you see, how do you see the, the, the well, I, mean, I know it's a very, it's a very hard call. It's a very difficult question, but the, the future of war and, and EU role and, and possible continuation or maybe ending of, the, of this war. Yeah, I think clearly there are, different visions uh, on ending the war. I think uh, there are some countries, and Poland definitely belongs to that camp, that believe strongly that uh, Putin has to be defeated, right? Uh, anything else will simply not solve the problem, but lead to further aggression uh, later on. And there are other countries who uh, believe uh, that is not a realistic proposition. Uh, the Ukraine will not be in a position to expel uh, the Russian military from all its territory. And they think that the longer the war lasts, the more people die. And, and therefore, the priority needs to be to bring this to an end as quickly as possible. Uh, at the moment, if you look at uh, sort of EU discussions, this division exists, but it's not yet evident, because I, I think there is still uh, a consensus basically on supporting Ukraine. But I do see a risk that if the collateral damage of the uh, of the conflict becomes higher in terms of inflation, in terms of energy, in terms of uh, people being tired and fed up with refugees, then this kind of uh, peace camp <laughs> will, will oh. become more vocal, right? And, and there could be much more of a uh, very difficult discussion on these issues. I do believe, however, if you look at the amount of support coming from, from outside, uh, I think the vast amount, particularly of the military, it comes from the US. So I 
do think that as long as the US maintains this line of strong support for the Ukraine, uh, I think I can't really see um, EU countries simply to saying, oh no, we were not going to, uh, to sanctions anymore. We need to get uh, Russian gas, otherwise we freeze in the winter. I don't really see this because uh, there's this example of the uh, EU sanctions after the annexation of Crimea after two, 2014. Uh, there were about eight countries in the EU who consistently said these sanctions are counterproductive, they cost us a lot, they, they are pointless, they are not uh, achieving any results. But every half a year, the sanctions were continued. And it would have been very easy just for one country to block that. But nobody did. So I think as far as, as long as, as big countries and the US is... So, supporting the Ukraine very strongly, I believe this course of action will continue and nobody will suddenly say, oh, no, that's the end, we can't, we can't support this anymore. There is a risk, of course, if things get really, really bad and if there are sort of yellow West movements in, in a number of member states, uh, this consensus might crumble. But uh, at the moment, I believe it depends primarily on on U.S. leadership and sufficient number of countries in the EU that uh, want to maintain the course of supporting Ukraine. If if that remains, then I would be reasonably confident that the EU will not fall apart over this issue. Let's hope that will be the case and the uh, elections in the Italy wouldn't uh, result in the U-turn and uh, in the Italian policy on this issue um, and that, that you maintain the, the cohesion uh that that it had and well allowing of course uh, different countries separate countries to, to follow their own policy and support ukraine in the way they they see fit uh well um anyway stefan it was a fascinating conversation and i wanted to ask you i wanted to thank you for for your insightful comments and i strongly uh, recommend to, to to read your analysis on the treaty change and also on this um you fit for geopolitical, making EU foreign policy fit for a geopolitical world. They are very timely, even if written a couple of months ago. Um, I hope we will come back to this subject, but thank you for being with us on the Liberal Euro podcast. Thank you very much, Leszek. All the best to you. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. Uh, please tune in for the Ricardo Silvestri next week. Uh, until two weeks. Thank you. Goodbye. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And if you like what we are doing and want to help spreading the liberal values, please give us a five-star review and share with your friends.